Well, if you have your Bibles with you once again, I invite you to turn with me to the Old Testament book of Psalms, Psalm 22. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find it on page 580, Psalm 22. If you're a guest with us, we've been working through the Psalms for the summer. We've come to a very familiar psalm and sometimes misunderstood psalm. And I want to speak for a few minutes this morning on this subject, the suffering Savior, Psalm 22. And we'll begin reading in verse 1 down to verse 21. And this is what the Word of God says. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me, like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you... O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of wild oxen. Written 1,000 years before the coming of Christ, Psalm 22 reads as if it were actually recorded by an eyewitness standing at the foot of Christ's cross. The words spoken by Jesus from the cross, as well as His thoughts and His sufferings, are recorded here in striking detail. For this is a psalm upon which Jesus meditated as He hung on the cross. David in this psalm is writing as a prophet under the direction of the Holy Spirit of God. And he has written the most detailed description of the cross found anywhere in Scripture. What David was describing in this psalm, crucifixion, didn't exist in his culture or in his lifetime. And yet, in this psalm, he describes the crucifixion of Christ with such detail and accuracy that in many ways, David provides an even clearer picture of the cross than those provided by Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the Apostle Paul. Psalm 22 is the psalm of the cross. It is an amazing psalm in its prophetic accuracy. In the words of the Apostle Peter, this psalm foretells the sufferings of Christ and His subsequent glories. And here, David brings us face to face with the suffering servant of Isaiah, the sacrificial Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. 
Charles Spurgeon in his uh, series, The Treasury of David on the Psalms, says this about Psalm 22. David and his afflictions may be here in a very modified sense, but as the star is concealed by the light of the sun, he who sees Jesus will probably neither see nor care to see David in this psalm. He goes on, We should read reverently, putting off our shoes from off our feet, as Moses did at the burning bush. For if there be holy ground anywhere in Scripture, it is in Psalm 22. And in this first section of this psalm, David takes us to the foot of the cross. And he describes for us the sufferings of our Savior, the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, so that you and I might glory in our Redeemer and give Him our souls, our lives, our all. And so would you notice with me, first of all, in verses 1 and 2, the fact that the cross was a place of separation. David says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. This psalm begins with a poignant rhetorical question that is meant to show the rejection and the abandonment suffered by the Son of God on the cross. Psalm 22 and verse 1 was the fourth saying that Jesus uttered from the cross at the ninth hour at approximately three in the afternoon during a three-hour period of darkness. In Matthew, in his gospel, he chronicles this statement. And in Matthew chapter 27 and verse 46, he writes, In about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lima sabachthani, that is... My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you'll notice in the text of this psalm, in verse 1, the absence of the words, my Father, and the use of the words, my God. And David is indicating that as Jesus hung on the cross, there was a separation within the relationships of the Godhead. That the perfect unity of the Trinity was broken for a time as God the Father turned His back on His Son. You'll also notice in verse number 1 that Jesus asks three questions. Why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? Why are you so far from the words of my groaning? And the word forsaken that is used here literally means to abandon or to leave behind or let go. And the Bible is teaching us clearly, friends, that Jesus indeed was forsaken by God the Father on the cross. For as Jesus hung on the cross, God the Father placed His divine wrath for sin upon His Son. As Jesus died in the place of sinners, as He died for all who would believe in Him, for salvation. And the prophet Isaiah, about 700 years before Christ's birth, described the penalty and the suffering that was placed upon Jesus Christ for the sin of the world in this time of separation. And in Isaiah chapter 53, verses 4 through 6, this is what Isaiah prophesies Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. And friends, while Jesus experienced immense suffering on the cross, being forsaken by his Father was his greatest affliction. For eternal God-forsakenness is the ultimate punishment for sin. And the Bible teaches that this eternal punishment is an eternal separation from God in a literal physical place called hell. 
And everyone who has never repented and turned away from their sins and trusted upon Christ and his work on the cross for their forgiveness and their salvation and their reconciliation to God will spend eternity forsaken and separated by God in this literal place. And I want you to know this morning that what Psalm 22 is declaring is that on the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ bore in his own body an eternity of wrath from God the Father for your sin and for mine. And one commentator summed it up very well in this description. He said, he, being infinite, suffered in a finite amount of time what we, being finite, would suffer in an infinite amount of time in eternity. This, friends, this is what Jesus did on the cross for you. It was a place of separation. And David records that as Jesus hung on the cross, separated from his Father with divine wrath upon his life for the sin of the world, he groaned. And this word is used some places to translate that of a roaring of a lion. It's also used to refer to an inward groaning. And this psalm is describing the deep petition coming from the innermost part of Christ's being as he hung on that cross. One Old Testament scholar said that this groaning was a loud cry exhorted by the greatest agony possible. Think of it. To be utterly rejected by the Father with whom he enjoyed unhindered intimate fellowship throughout eternity. This was the greatest hell that Christ knew on the cross. And this sense of separation and abandonment led Jesus in verse number two, do you see it in the psalm? To cry out in desperation. It was an intimate cry, like the cry of a lost child searching for their father, longing to see their face desperately one more time. And Jesus was crying out in the depths of his being through this sense of abandonment. And verse 2 says that he cried out in the day and he cried out in the night, but God didn't answer him. And the psalm says that Jesus found no rest. The Son of God, forsaken by the Father. What a mystery. It is such a mystery that after Martin Luther, the great reformer, pondered this truth, he simply said, God forsaken by God. Who can understand it? Jesus was alone on the cross, friends, so that you and I would never have to be alone. Jesus was forsaken on the cross so that you and I would never have to be forsaken so that you and I could be accepted by God. Well, the cross was not only a place of separation in verses 3 through 5, it was also a place of substitution. This is what the psalmist says, Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued, in you they trusted and were not put to shame. The questions that seem to convey doubt and confusion in verses 1 and 2 are followed by a strong statement of trust in God and in His sovereignty in verses 3 through 5. You'll notice the word trusted is repeated three times in these verses. And with the repeated use of this word, Jesus is emphasizing God the Father's utter and complete trustworthiness. You'll also notice in verse number 3 that Jesus not only declares his trust in God, he declares the holiness of God the Father. And in so doing, he is stating that he understands why God must separate from him as he bore the wrath of God for sin. That because God is so holy, he can't look upon the sin that has been placed upon his Son. Jesus was forsaken because he was dying in the place of sinners. And the Apostle Paul reminds us that it was for our sake that Christ became this suffering substitute. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21, 
he writes this, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And even though Jesus was forsaken by God in his substitutionary work on the cross, notice what the psalm says in these verses. He continued to trust in his heavenly Father. And he cries out that God the Father is enthroned on the praises of Israel. The word enthroned is an affirmation of Jesus' understanding that the silence of his father did not mean that God had abdicated his position as the sovereign ruler over the affairs of man. No, Jesus was declaring his trust with this phrase in his father. He was declaring the fact that the father was sovereignly in control of every single thing that was happening as Jesus hung on the cross. And in verses 4 and 5, Jesus recounts the history of God's people and the fact that God never abandoned any of them. He recounts the fact that from the earliest days of the nation of Israel, the men and women who trusted in God were never disappointed in God and they were never disappointed in His faithfulness. He was reminding himself and us of the fact that God has always been faithful to his people. That God has always maintained his covenant. That God has always kept his promises to deliver his people when they put their trust in him. God saves his people. And verses 4 and 5 show us that when Jesus was in the very darkest hour of his life, he strengthened his soul by reminding himself of the way that God had been faithful to those who had gone before him. Jesus knew in that moment that God the Father is a covenant-keeping God. And that as the Son, he has an eternal covenant within the Trinity that will never ultimately be broken. And I want you to notice the importance of these verses, friends, in verses 3 through 5. Christ was encouraged to persevere on the cross as a substitute for your sin and mine. Notice how he did it. As he meditated on the character of God and on his trustworthiness. Yes, Jesus was forsaken, but he never lost confidence in his Father. Because he knew that the same Father who hid his face from his Son would in three days raise his Son from the grave. And these verses are a reminder to you and I this morning, friends, that when we feel like God has abandoned us, we can remember how God has been faithful to others, and most importantly, how God has been faithful to his Son. And just as God the Father was faithful to deliver his son, he will be faithful to deliver you. The question is, will you trust him? Will you trust him for your salvation? Will you trust him for your life? Will you trust him for your future? So the cross was not only a place of separation and a place of substitution. In verses 6 through 8, the cross was a place of scorn. The Bible says, but I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. These verses teach us that the rejection that the Son of God experienced on the cross did not come from God the Father alone. In both Psalm 22 as well as the gospel accounts of the crucifixion, we see that the spectators treated Jesus like a despised and hated criminal, as though he had lost his right to be a very human being. And in verses 6 through 8 of this psalm, David describes the ridicule and the derision that would be hurled at Jesus Christ by evil men. And in verse 6, you'll see how Jesus lamented. As he hung on the cross and he cried out, I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. And the word despised in verse 6 is the emphasis of this scorn that is being described in these verses. This word occurs 70 times in the Old Testament. It means to disgrace, to scorn, to shame, 
to show contempt or to rebuke. In some instances, it carries the idea of an accusation or a blame that is cast upon someone. In addition, the word is used to describe the taunting of one's enemies and of the defamation of a person's character in order to discredit them. And this is the emphasis that the Bible is placing upon what Jesus experienced as he hung upon that cross. That the treatment that Jesus faced on the cross was inhumane. The prophet Isaiah prophesied that Jesus would be beaten so severely that anyone who knew him would probably no longer be able to recognize him. And in Isaiah chapter 52 verse 14, the prophet says, As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. In the very next chapter, Isaiah went on to prophesy that there was nothing majestic. There was nothing outstanding about Christ's appearance that anyone should take notice of him or desire him. And in Isaiah chapter 53, verses 2 to 3, Isaiah says, For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we would look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. And in verses 7 and 8, the crowd's reaction as they looked at the cross demonstrated their venom and their hatred of Christ. The Bible says in the Gospels that they spat on him, they struck him, they spoke blasphemous words against him, they flogged him, they beat him with a reed. And if that weren't enough, look at the text, look at the verses in the psalm as Jesus hung on the cross. They mocked him, and they wagged their heads at him. And beyond all of these outward actions of disgust, verse 8 gives an example of the insults that flowed from the mouths of Christ's accusers as they gathered around the foot of the cross. Do you see it in verse 8? He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him. For he delights in him. Mocking. Wagging their heads. Matthew in his account describes this greater detail of the scorn that was thrust upon Christ. And he says this in Matthew chapter 27 verses 39 to 44. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and the elders, they mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Jesus the very Son of God, experienced this scorn and this shame on the cross and all of its fullness so that you and I and every single person who would look to Him and believe in Him and trust in Him for their forgiveness and for their salvation, listen, friends, would be accepted and received by the living God. The cross was not only a place of separation, a place of substitution, and a place of scorn. In verses 9 to 11, the cross was a place of sovereignty. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. In verses 9 and 10 of this psalm, Jesus reminded the Father that his birth into the world had been a part of the Father's sovereign plan and that from Mary's womb, Jesus had declared that the Father was his God. 
And that contrary to the accusations of the mockers, Jesus knew that God brought him out of the womb, that God had made him to trust him as a young child, and was even now sustaining him through his sovereign power. And friends, these verses are teaching us that as Jesus suffered on the cross, he was sustained by meditating on the sovereignty of God and how his father had cared for him in the past. And even now, while he was hanging on the cross, Jesus trusted in this sovereign care of his father. And Jesus could affirm the declarations of Job in Job chapter 10 and verse 8. When he cried out to God, your hands fashioned me and made me, and you have destroyed me altogether. And in Job chapter 13 and verse 15, though he slay me, I will hope in him. This is what Jesus Christ was resting in on the cross. And in verse 11, we see that God is far away from his son, that trouble is near, and that Jesus is all alone. And the Bible will tell us in the Gospels that not even his disciples stayed at his side. They all fled in fear. And though alone and surrounded by trouble, Jesus knew everything that he was experiencing and everything that was happening to him was a part of the sovereign plan of God. And I wonder today, could that be the testimony of your life? That everything that you have gone through and everything that you have experienced, the good and the bad and the in-between, could you, like Jesus, in his moment of greatest suffering, say it was all a part of the sovereign plan of God? The cross was not only a place of separation, a place of substitution, a place of scorn, and a place of of sovereignty. It was also a place of suffering in verses 12 to 18. Now let me tell you what is happening in these verses, friends. Keep your Bible open and don't lose your spot. In these verses, David takes us to the cross, and it's as if we are hanging there on the cross and looking down from the cross and experiencing Everything that Jesus experienced in that moment. And through the Holy Spirit of God, David describes the vicious torture that Jesus experienced in his suffering. And we need to be careful to read these words slowly and thoughtfully. And not just read right past them in a hurry And be immune to the weight of what is being described here that Jesus experienced. This is what Jesus went through for you and for me. And in verses 12 to 13, David tells us that he was surrounded. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. Notice what David is doing. He is comparing the spectators that were surrounding the cross to strong bulls and roaring lions. And he says that they're from the land of Bashan, which was a very fertile area east of the Sea of Galilee where wheat and cattle were raised. Its cattle grazed in rich green pastures and grew larger and stronger than all of the other cattle in that region. It was a solitary pasture land where there was no domestication of the animals. And so these bulls of Bashan were large and they were wild. And do you see what the psalm is describing of the spectators as they stood around the foot of the cross and as they looked up at Jesus? The psalm is saying that these men who murdered Jesus were so brutal, they were so wicked, they were so cruel, the Bible describes them as wild beasts. It's a picture of their evil and their brutality. And I want you to listen carefully to this statement. When people reject God, They will act like animals. 
And that's what was happening at the foot of the cross. One commentator believes that what the Lord is seeing in these verses is far more than just an angry crowd. He says that he believes that Jesus is sensing the closing in of the forces of hell as they do everything in their power to put Jesus out of existence. The strong bulls, the wild beasts, the Bashan, he's surrounded by his enemies. There's no place of escape. There's no opportunity for mercy. At the beginning of verse 14, the Bible says his bones were dislocated. He says, I'm poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. The Roman soldiers drove nails in the hands and the feet of Jesus when they placed him on the cross. And as a result of this action by the Romans, there are several possible explanations for the dislocation of Jesus' bones. First, they could have been dislocated when the soldiers raised and hoisted the cross high in the air and dropped it into the ground. Second, his bones could have been dislocated as a result of the distorted position of his body on the cross. Or third, they could have been dislocated as Jesus had to pull up on the nails that were driven into his hands and his feet to take a breath. Now notice what the text says carefully. His bones were not broken. They were out of joint. For John reminds us in his gospel that this aspect of the crucifixion was a fulfillment of Scripture. Listen carefully to John 19 verses 31 to 37. Since it was the day of preparation and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath... For that that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once there came out blood and water. And he who saw it has borne witness and his testimony is true and he knows that he is telling the truth. Do you hear John's testimony? John is testifying to you this morning that no bones were broken in Jesus' body. And that he's telling the truth. And listen to me, friends. Listen carefully to me. This is not just a theological exercise that I am taking you through this morning. Doctrine is for life. Doctrine is for living. And the understanding of the crucifixion and what Jesus Christ has done for you in his body on the cross is so that you might live. And John says this, I'm writing this to you, I'm telling you the truth, listen, that you may believe. That's the point of the text. The psalmist is showing you Christ, not to increase your head and your knowledge, but to expand your heart and to show you your desperate need for Christ so that you would run to Him as your refuge and safety and security, and so that you would believe in Him and find true life and live with Him forever. That's the point. That's why Jesus suffered all of this for you. The one who holds the very stars and galaxies together by the word of His power was dislocated throughout His body just for you. That's how much he loved you. So that you would believe in Christ. At the end of verse 14, the psalmist says that his heart melted. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. The Lord's strength upon the cross was waning like melted wax. In verse 15, the psalmist says he was thirsty. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me. In the dust of death, the word posture describes a piece of pottery that a 
potter would discard. It would not pass examination. And he would throw it on the ground in the heat of the climate along with the blazing sun would splinter the pottery. It would crack it. It would crinkle it. It would dry up. And with Jesus' heart melting like wax and with his strength waning from within him, listen to how he's describing himself. He sees himself as a discarded piece of pottery that is splintered, broken, cracked, and dried up. And this failing strength along with all of the pain and the heat made him extremely thirsty for water. That's why he cried out from the cross in the Gospel of John, I thirst. Think of it, friends. The one who created every body of water was himself void of water to drink on the cross as he hung there as a broken clay pot and notice that God is absent he's far off we've already seen that and yet Jesus still acknowledges God's sovereign control over all that has happened you see it subtly in the text and it begs the question of the text who crucified Jesus and some would say the Roman soldiers did others would say the Sanhedrin did others would say the Jews did but do you know what Jesus said God the Father crucified him. Look at what the psalmist says in these verses. You, God the Father, lay me in the dust. It's what the Apostle Paul testified in Romans chapter 3 and verse 25. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Who put Jesus on the cross? Paul says God the Father Put him on the cross. In Isaiah chapter 53 verse 10. Isaiah says. Yet it was the will of the Lord. It was the will of Yahweh. Isaiah says. To do what? To crush him. And he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt. It was God's will. That he crushed his son. And he did that. For you. So that you. Would believe in him. In verse 16, he was pierced. The psalmist says, For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. All the forces of hell had gathered around the foot of the cross. And this verse is a prophetic reference to the wounds that Jesus suffered in his crucifixion. Both of the Gospels declare that Jesus was pierced. In his side for our sins. In verse 17, the psalmist says he was exposed. I can count all my bones. They stare and they gloat over me. Can you picture the scene? Jesus is hanging there on the cross with his arms spread out and his feet nailed to the cross. And his head is hanging down. His heart is melted like wax. His strength is leaving him. He's pierced in his side And he looks at his body and he can count all of his bones. He's naked in front of this mob. This angry, wild animal mob. And they stare and they gloat at him in his nakedness and in his vulnerability. Luke 23, 35 says, And the people stood by watching, but the ruler scoffed at him, saying he saved others, let him save himself. Could you imagine being stripped of every item of clothing and nailed to the cross and not only suffering all of the things that have been described, but have people acting like wild animals looking up at you, mocking making fun of you. Verse 18, his clothes were divided. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And this is exactly what the gospel writers say the Roman soldiers did to Jesus. They didn't know this prophecy, but they fulfilled it. And it's so important that every single gospel writer records this action by the Roman soldiers. Here they are taking Jesus' clothes and gambling for them. Oh, friends, can't you see it? 
These verses go far beyond David. They go to David's son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the suffering, the suffering that he experienced for you and for me. And the theology of the cross teaches us this, friends. We deserve to be nailed to that cross. We deserve to be beaten. We deserve to be despised. We deserve to be ridiculed. We deserve to be pierced. We deserve all of this. But because God is rich in his mercy and in his love and in his grace, he put forward his son to die in your place on that cross. You should have been on that cross. But God loved you so much, he sent his son to experience this for you. So that you would believe in him. And be reconciled to the God who made you and gave you life and created you. Jesus experienced all of this suffering for you so that you could find satisfaction in him. The cross was not only a place of separation, a place of substitution, a place of scorn, a place of sovereignty, and a place of suffering. Finally, it was a place of supplication in verses 19 to 21. But you, O Lord... Do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. Do you see how this portion of the psalm ends? It ends with an urgent plea for rescue. These verses of this psalm should be read in light of Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 7, where the writer of Hebrews says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. And what Hebrews 5, 7 is describing is the same thing that the psalmist is describing in these verses. In the midst of all of the suffering that the Lord Jesus Christ endured on our behalf, he offered up prayers and supplications to his Father. He offered up passionate cries and tears to the only one who was able to save him, his heavenly Father. And you'll notice for the first time in the psalm, a subtle thing takes place in verse 19. God is addressed by his covenant name, Lord or Yahweh. And as Christ was crucified and as he was crying out in these prayers and supplications and tears, he was referring to the covenant name of his heavenly Father. And it's as if Jesus was saying, if anyone is going to save me, Father, it has to be you. If you're going to raise me up out of the death, it has to be you. No one else can do it. I commit my spirit, my life to you. And this first section of Psalm 22, it ends on this triumphant note. Look at verse 21. Verse 21 is not a cry of despair. It is a cry of triumph. Save me from the mouth of the lion. Look at it. It's, it's positive. It's present tense. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. It marks the moment at which the period of darkness has passed over Jesus' life. And his father has no longer kept his back to his son. His father has now turned back to his son. And Jesus becomes aware of his father's presence once more. And he cries out, save me. Or if you will, you have heard me, father. You have heard me, Lord. And as Jesus breathed his last breath on the cross, he was crying out in triumph that his heavenly Father had heard his prayers and had heard his cries, and he believed that his Father was going to save him and rescue him. This is how Luke describes this moment. In Luke 23, 46, Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, 
Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. That's verse 21 of Psalm 22, friends. He committed his spirit to his Father. He trusted in him and he breathed his last. It's an amazing psalm, isn't it? Can't you understand why Spurgeon said, when you read and study this psalm, you need to take off your shoes and bow because you're on holy ground. The foot of the cross, friends, is holy ground. And as amazing as it is to study this psalm and to think of Christ's suffering in his death and all that he has done, it's also important to realize that we can study this psalm. We can understand the theology of this psalm. Listen to the heart of your pastor. We can study it and we can understand it and we can still perish in our sins forever separated from the God who did this for you. Because it's not enough just to know it. It's not enough just to understand it. The Bible says clearly that you have to confess that you're a sinner. That you have disobeyed God's law. That you have disobeyed His word. That you have denied Him. That you have turned away from Him. In thought and word and deed, you've committed sin and that this sin is separated from you from God. The Bible says you have to confess this. And you have to turn from it. You don't want to keep living the way you've been living. You want to turn from your sin that separates you from God and you want to begin to live for God. It's a great theological word that we call repentance. You confess your sin and you repent. You do a 180. You turn and go in the opposite direction of the way you've been living. And you believe. You believe everything that this psalm says. That Jesus Christ, God's only son, the one who knew no sin, became sin for you. So that you could experience his righteousness. So that you could no longer be separated from God. But you could be accepted by God. Not based on what you've done. But based on what God's son has done for you. And living a life that you could never live. And dying in your place a death that you deserve to die. You believe that Jesus did that for you. You rest your weight, your life, your eternity on it. And you cry out to God and you ask him to forgive you and save you. And if you've never done that, and your life has never changed, listen to me. Listen to this old-fashioned preacher. How do you know you're a Christian? There's been a change in your life. You're just fooling yourself if you think walking an aisle, repeating a prayer that somebody else made up that isn't even in your Bible will change your life. There's only one person that will change your life and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And if there's been no change in your life, you're deceiving yourself because there's no Christ in your life. And so don't miss it. You can know all the theology of the cross. You can be a better theologian than your pastor and not make heaven. It's only running to Christ and putting everything that you have in His hands and believing that just as surely as He rose from the dead, You'll rise from death in your trespasses and sins to new life in Jesus Christ. Well, friends, he did this for you. Won't you trust him? Won't you cry out to him? Won't you quit trying to figure it out on your own and run to Christ in abandonment? And let him change you. Teenagers, 
I'm talking to you this morning. You hear the gospel over and over by your parents, in church, in Sunday school. But have you ever believed? Have you ever turned? Have you ever trusted? Children, you've spent a week of hearing the gospel in vacation Bible school. Have you believed? Are you trusting? Has Jesus saved you? Some of us in this room are playing games at the foot of the cross. Like we're talking the language. We're coming to church. We're looking like everything's right on the outside. And in the inside, we are an absolute mess and we're hypocrites. Because we've not been changed. Friends, this is what Jesus did for you. And it's what he did for me. And listen, it demands a decision. Will you turn? Will you confess? And will you believe? Or will you keep on playing games? And one day, it be too late. Jesus did this for you. And it demands your life, your soul, your all. Let's pray. Oh God, like Spurgeon, we are humbled by your word. And our prayer today is, God, that we would not look at these verses and what you have done through your son with no emotion, with hardened hearts, with complacency. Help us not to treat the treasures of Christ in an unworthy manner. God, I pray today that your son would be exalted above all of us. Your presence has been with us today. We've sensed it. We know it. We believe your presence is working even now through your word. And I pray today that you would bring people to yourself in confession and repentance and belief. That you would save people and that you would change lives for their good and for your glory, God. Open the eyes of those who are deceived. Soften the hearts of the complacent. Build your church, build your people for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.